Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 16, 7 through 11. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maggie. The New Testament reading is found in Colossians 2, 1-3. I want you to know how much I struggle for you, for those in Laodicea, and all, for all who haven't known me personally. My goal is their hearts would be encouraged and united together in love, so that they might have all the riches of assurance that come with understanding, so that they might have the knowledge of the secret place of God, namely Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Pam, and thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that somebody hid in a field, which someone else found and covered up. Full of joy, the finder sold everything and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one very precious pearl, he went and sold all that he owned and bought it. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and we thank you for the word of God that speaks to us by the Holy Spirit. And so we welcome the work of the Holy Spirit this morning to come and search our hearts and minds and open us up to the life of God, to the truth of God, to the joy that is found in his presence. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. My name's Glenn Packham. I get to serve as the pastor here at New Life Downtown. We are in a series that we began uh, the week after Easter, and actually today is the fourth Sunday of Easter. Easter, uh, for Christians all around the world and throughout the centuries, is a season, has been a season, and part of the reason for that is because for many Christians, the, the run-up to Easter, the six weeks leading up to it, is a season known as Lent, and so Christians often prepare for the cross and for uh, the holiness of Christ's suffering by uh, fasting or by lowering themselves, and so it, Lent is the season of fasting, but we forget that actually Easter is a season of feasting that follows the season of fasting, and so it's meant to say to us, the feast will always outlast the fast, that's why it's seven weeks and not six, and it's meant to say to us that resurrection gets to have the last word over death, amen? And at the very least, you can use it as an excuse to say, well, let's keep on feasting. Uh, and so if you found hidden Cadbury eggs, you may do so. Um, but during the season of Easter tide or Easter season, we've been going through some parables that Jesus taught or some stories, if you'd like, 
that Jesus told. And in the book of Acts, when it says after the resurrection, it says that Jesus appeared to his disciples and began to teach them about the kingdom of God. Now, we know that Paul's letters were written long before the gospels were actually written down. And so there were actually communities of Christians that had been planted, that had begun to worship Jesus. And you imagine that maybe they were looking back through the lens of the resurrected Christ and saying, what were those stories he told? Let's start to write these things down. So even though these stories appear in Matthew's gospel chronologically before the cross, it's very likely that these Christians, as they're looking back through the lens of resurrection, looking back through the resurrected Jesus, teaching them about the kingdom of God, it's very likely that they're now remembering these stories with a different perspective. And so Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, the way Matthew writes it down is, the parables are not illustrations. They don't make things clearer. They are not Aesop's fables that give us morality tales. In fact, Jesus says, I, I speak in parables. They ask him this flat out in Matthew 13. And he says, I speak in parables so that those who don't understand will go on not understanding. And you're like, that's kind of weird, but okay. And then he said, and so that those who do understand will be, will see, will understand even more. And you, you, you get the sense that you have to approach the parables the way you approach a sci-fi movie or a fantasy movie, that you have to suspend disbelief for a minute. Like if you're going to watch Avengers, just don't even worry about whether the timeline stuff makes sense or not. Just put the, suspend it and just watch, right? And there, there I didn't, no spoilers, uh, there is a sense there is a sense in which when you approach these parables to say, these are not apologetics arguments, these are not proofs or illustrations. This is Jesus saying, if you have an ounce of faith, then your faith will lead you to deeper understanding. But let faith kind of lead you toward understanding. And so here we are talking about what the kingdom is like. The first parable we looked at was about wheat and weeds. And that kind of says to us, the kingdom requires an extraordinary amount of patience. We don't need to be experts in judgment and who's going where. We don't know how someone else's story will end. And then last week, the parable of the mustard seed and of yeast is really about the sense of persistence, that over time, God does his work in exponential ways. And the power doesn't have to be in you or me because we're the dirt and the dough. But Jesus is the seed and the yeast. Now, it's also important as we approach these parables that we understand what Matthew means when he has Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven. These are not stories about heaven. And so uh, all, a lot of us as Westerners, you hear the word heaven and you start thinking about the afterlife and chubby babies playing harps on clouds, right? Thank you, Renaissance art. But when Matthew has Jesus say the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about the afterlife. He's saying the kingdom from the God of the God who reigns from the heavens. The kingdom of the God who is above it all. The God who reigns over all the heavens and the earth. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, he's not giving us a clue into the afterlife. He's saying this is what God's kingship is like. This is what God's reign is like. And this is not something that begins after death. This is not something that is for the afterwards. This is for the right now. Every time Jesus teaches on the kingdom, he's giving us insight into how to live under his reign now. We live with patience. The wheat and the weeds say we live with persistence. The seed and the yeast say, and today, the treasure and the pearl, we're going to talk about what it means to think in the kingdom way about value and investment. Value and investment. Now, 
Every so often we use these words to talk about kingdom stuff, but we use words that have other associations in our world. And I, if I say the word reward, you've already got a whole set of associations with that word reward. If I say the word value, you're like, oh, I know what value is. If I say the word investment, you're like, oh, well, I'm an expert in that. This is what I do, you know. So it's worth maybe before we open the stories to just say, how is the way we understand value similar or different to the way value works in the kingdom of God. So I just want to make a couple of observations. I'm not an economics professor, so these are amateur observations, okay? If you are a financial advisor, you can correct me in an email, but just wait till Monday. In the world, value is a function of scarcity and desirability. In short, value is about supply and demand. If there's a, a, a lack of something, and it's something that everybody wants, then it's valuable. Now, if something is rare but not desirable, it's still not valuable. If something is plentiful and desirable, you're like, mm, still not as valuable, as valuable as the thing that is rare and desirable, or scarcity and desirability. But secondly, in the world, value is proportionately related to cost. Okay, let, let's just unpack this for a minute. What, what do you mean, proportionately related to cost? Okay. Any realtors in the house? Don't raise your hands. Okay. Uh, there, every time we ask a realtor, how much is my house worth? What do they say? It's worth what someone, whatever someone is willing to pay for it. And this is not just their way of hedging their bets so that they don't overpromise you something, but it's also true. It's how our economy functions. Value is proportionately related to cost. Okay, flip the example. Have you ever tried to sell a really expensive item at a garage sale? Like, let's say, for example, a treadmill that you once upon a time spent $800 on or something like that and was cutting-edge technology in circa 1994. <laughs> and somewhere along the way, you fell off the wagon and said, ah, I'm really not using this anymore. Let's sell it. And a person strolls by and says, I'll give you 50 bucks for that. And you're like, <gasps> so offended because you're 50 bucks. Like, I paid, you know. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't matter. The value of a thing is what someone's willing to pay for it, right? So value is proportionately related to cost. Think of another example of this. You buy a t-shirt at the Goodwill, and then you go through the Starbucks drive-through and you're juggling your phone and your Starbucks perilously whilst driving, which we do not encourage, and all of a sudden your $5 peppermint skinny soy mocha spills all over your $2 thrift store shirt. You're not going to be upset about the t-shirt because... You didn't spend that much on it. You go to a concert that was free and it's bad. You're like, that's disappointing, but I didn't really spend that much on it. Value is proportionately related to cost. You don't value it that much if you didn't have to spend that much. Think about another example of this. You ever tried to buy something on the cheap? You're like, those Beats Bluetooth headphones are too expensive, but I found this website that sells Bluetooth headphones, and yes, it is Beats, like B-E-E-T-S, <laughs> but I'm sure it works just as well, and it's only 10 bucks, and then you buy it, and after your second workout, it stops working, and you're like, darn it, and then what do you tell yourself? Well, you get what you pay for. In the world, value is proportionately related to cost. But in the kingdom, this is not always the case. In the kingdom, value is about more than just supply and demand. Maybe the best example of this is when we think about human life. In the song we sang earlier, it says, I see your heart, God's heart, eight billion different ways. Have you ever scratched your head and said, wait a minute, I thought we were saying a hundred billion. Why did all of a sudden we say eight billion? 
because, I'm about to crack the code for some of you, light bulbs are going to go off, there are approximately 7.7 billion human beings alive on the planet today. Oh. And so the songwriters are trying to say, oh, we see God's heart in every single human being. Why? Because value of a human life has nothing to do with supply and demand. It doesn't matter if there are 7.7 billion humans, the supply may be growing, but the value is fixed, right? Or, and it has nothing to do with demand. If someone says, well, the life in the womb is not really a life and is not valuable and we don't really want it and there's no demand for that life so we can end that life whenever we want to, Christians stand up and say every life, even when it begins in the womb, is valuable because the value is fixed by the image of God that that person reflects. Amen? Amen? So in the kingdom, value is about more than supply and demand. And secondly, in the kingdom, value is actually very often disproportionately related to cost. Disproportionately. What's an example of this? Well, Paul makes it a point to say that Christ died for the unworthy. In other words, the scales are not balanced here. Jesus overpaid. You guys are like, what? <laughs> but I'm worth it. You're worth it because he chose to set his love on you and to spend his life. But Paul makes it a point to say, grace is disproportionate. Grace is inequitable. There is an incongruity between cost and value. God decided to value you and give his life for you. But, but the other example of that, which we're going to talk about this morning, is what happens when you give up your life for Jesus? Have we really given up something when you give up your whole life and you gain Jesus? Value is disproportionately related to cost. Our cost is nothing compared to the value of who he is, right? And so that's what this parable is about. Okay, economics lesson, amateur economics lesson, over, okay? If you've got a Bible, you can pick up your Bible and turn to Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a sure that somebody hid in a field which someone else found and covered up. And full of joy, the finder sold everything and bought that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one very precious pearl, he went and sold all that he had, uh, that he owned, and bought it. I want to make three observations from this story that Jesus told. And the first is maybe not the one that we would guess. But joy is the reason. When you think of these parables, we, our mind jumps right away to the enormous cost. He sold everything. Did he have to sell everything? I mean, isn't this extreme? Isn't this radical? I mean, if you knew someone who actually did this, and Jesus is deliberately using examples from their world, a merchant a person who's bought a field and someone else had hidden this. You're like, does that actually really happen? That does happen. People would sometimes bury treasure in their field to avoid if, if invaders came in. It would be the last place they would look. It'd be like buying a house and you went to tear down a wall or, or rip up the floorboards and you found treasure. You're like, does that stuff happen? It could happen. Right? And so we think of the cost or we think of the treasure, but before the, Jesus tells us either of those things, he tells us about the man's joy. Verse 44, he says, the man full of joy. Somebody say, full of joy. 
One of the commentaries I read over the course of preparing for this said, joy is the engine for change. Now, I like that. But actually, the truth is there are lots of reasons why human beings change. There's lots of things that drive us to change a situation. One thing, one reason for change is guilt. When you feel like, oh, I sort of should, okay, I will go with my mom to church on Mother's Day. None of you. Another reason for change is fear. You're like, well, if I don't, something terrible is going to happen. I better change the way I'm doing something or I might get fired. Another reason for change is when the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of change. And so people who move out of addictions or destructive behaviors or toxic relationships say, well, the pain of staying here is way worse. Yes, it's going to be difficult to step out here, but I'm going to do it because the pain is worse if I do nothing. Those are all valid and legitimate reasons, but I think what Jesus is saying to us is the strongest reason for change is joy. Is joy. The most powerful thing that draws us into a life change is joy. Is to say, do you really mean there's, there's something else here? Do you really mean that this could be true about my life? Is it really true that my life could be this way? Well, then for the joy of that, I'll change. C.S. Lewis we talked about him a couple weeks ago when we were talking about wheat and weeds, but Lewis, as many of you might know, went through a period of time where the more educated he got, he began to sort of reject uh, the faith of his childhood. Then he became kind of a spiritualist. Then he became sort of a generally religious person, but he kept journeying down this road, and over the course of a couple years, eventually surrendered his life and said, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And when Lewis recounts the story in his own sort of autobiography, he named his autobiography Surprised by Joy. And he called it that because he was saying, I thought all along that religion was sort of this duty, but it was joy that drew me. And Lewis often called, referred to these experiences when he would listen to a poem or a beautiful piece of music or read a great fairy story and he would feel this ache and he called it the stabs of joy. And Lewis had this to say about joy. He said, joy, all joy reminds. It is never a possession. Always a desire for something longer ago. Lewis would sometimes say, joy is almost like nostalgia. Where you seem to, I seem to remember this feeling. What is that? Something longer ago or further away or still about to be. It's joy that sets us on a chase. It's joy that makes us say, whoa, 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 whoa. what's going on there? I, I, I want to know more. Century or so ago, a couple hundred years ago, there was a German philosopher named Immanuel Kant. And Kant decided to take the Christian version of morality, his fellow, generalize it for all human beings, for all his fellow Germans. And so while Luther had developed a whole ethic of God has done this for us, therefore we freely give to our neighbor, Kant said, well, can we just bracket God out of this and just talk about our duty to one another? And so Kant developed this whole system of ethics essentially based on obligation and duty. 
And if you ever hear someone say continent, or actually, better yet, at your brunch or lunch later, you could say, boy, that is quite like Kantian ethics, isn't it? <laughs> and you could sound very clever when you do that, okay? But Kant developed this whole way of saying, this is what we owe one another. This is our obligation. This is our duty. So even today, when we use phrases like, my civic duty, or I, I fulfilled my neighborly, you know, whatever, all of those things come from a Kantian view that says, do the right thing because it's what you owe one another. It's obligation and duty. But Jesus knows that duty cannot carry you where delight will. That in the end, obligation is not enough to propel you in the long run. Only joy can do that. The man that sells all doesn't do so because he's come aware to his civic duty and obligation. He does so because he is full of joy. Now, I don't know what you've heard about Jesus, and I don't know what you've heard about religion, and I don't know what associations come to mind when you think about the Christian life. You might think, well, oh, the Christian life, a bunch of fussy rules from a God who doesn't want anyone to have any fun. I don't need that. And Jesus says, the first thing you need to know about living under my reign is that it begins with joy. It begins with joy. Not obligation, not you're a sinner, not guilt, not fear, not the avoidance of the fires of hell, but the joy that makes you sell all. The second observation from this parable, not only is joy the reason, but surrender is the requirement. Both, in both parables, the man sells all. In other words, joy is much more than the surge of a positive emotion. Joy is that. Joy surely has to do with a chemical wave and a, a, a surge of emotion. Surely it has, it includes all of that, but it is more than that. It is more than that. And this man in his joy sells everything he owned. Sells everything he owned. Joy culminates in a costly act. Now some of you maybe have heard the saying that every yes means less. Have you heard this? Time management gurus, business consultants, life coaches, every yes you say means less of your, go down the list, time, energy, resources, money, you know, to give to other things. So you have to minimize the things you say yes to, right? You can find this in business books like essentialism or whatever. Take, take a number. I mean, it's, it's just out there, right? It's true. Every yes, if you've never heard it before, there you go. Every yes means less. Be careful what you say yes to, right? But it is also true that some yeses are more costly than others. And there's, we know this even in a, in a mini standpoint, like when we said yes to being part, for Jonas to be part of the junior soccer academy, we knew that it was possible that they would schedule a game in Denver on the afternoon of Mother's Day, as they have done today. But every yes means less, and some yeses are more costly than others. You're like, well, we've said yes, we gotta follow through, right? Maybe one of the costliest yeses from a human perspective is marriage. <laughs> Where you're saying your yeses before God, you're saying your yeses to one another. I do's is a yes. But in that I do is about a hundred billion I don'ts. And in that one yes is like a billion no's. I'll sometimes say to couples at the, during the wedding ceremony, I'll say, well, after these vows... Your life, as you have known it, is over. And this is the exact response, nervous laughter. 
you know. <laughs> People be like, <laughs> really? You know, like, yes, no more two, but one. You're like, <laughs> okay, did we really know that? You know, I hope you did. <laughs> it is a costly yes. It's a yes that changes everything. And today's Mother's Day, so all of you mothers in the room recognize that your yes to having children is a costly and demanding yes. Sometimes just for amusement, I'll scroll through a news feed on Facebook, and uh, other than, than, you know, politics and all of that, the, the, the second most controversial Facebook posts are about motherhood, you know? If anybody wants to post their opinion, you're feeling brave today, tell uh, the whole world what you think is a good mother or not, and you'll, everyone will come back at you, you're like, no, that's not true, and you know? But, but once in a while, a person who's just expecting about to have their first child will say something like, My, you know, we have just committed that nothing in our lives are going to change because of this. Yeah, you're right, right. And so, then, and so then, the more seasoned moms do the Facebook version of that. Mmm. God bless you. You know? If motherhood is like the ultimate job that ends up costing you everything. You know, I mean, no one would dream of saying yes to a job and then saying, but nothing's going to change about my life. I'm just going to carry on playing Minecraft, you know, or whatever, you know. Like, but you said yes to the job. Like, no, nothing's going to change, you know. In, in a similar way, moms, you know this. You're heroic because of this. You've said a yes that has changed everything about your lives, changed the way you think about your careers, changed the way you've had to juggle things, changed the way that you've had to, it's, it's, it costs yes, and it is for dads too, but today's Mother's Day, so we'll talk about that. <laughs> Surrender is the requirement. In the ancient world, there were options when it came to God's. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, Israel was unique for being monotheistic, for believing in one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Not just that he is one, but that he's the only one you need. He's the only one you need. So even in the Old Testament, you had all of these other uh, uh, people groups and, 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 and tribes and, and uh, regions that would say, well, I mean, that's well and good. I mean, what does your God do? Is, does he deal with the rain? Okay, well, my God deals with fertility and my God deals with, you know, and so then you have to sort of gods of the ancient world, collect them all, you know. You need to kind of have this. And even in Jesus' day, the Roman world, what, 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 they, they carried this on where you would have different gods that you would pray to for different things. And Jesus stood up and said, I tell you the truth, no one can serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other. In other words, and then when he tells this parable, he's saying, it is going to require that you give up everything. But you know, I think our day is not all that different from Jesus' day. We are constantly tempted to add the conjunction and after the name God. And so we always say God and Faith and family, God and country. Pick your slogan. And God becomes politicized, weaponized, synchronized, syncretized, I should say, with all these other loyalties and allegiances. But Jesus says that's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom only has one king. 
The kingdom only has one king. You can like other things, you can enjoy other things, you can pursue other things, you can be proud of this, you can be glad about that, but when it comes to loyalty and allegiance, there is only one king. It is never Jesus and, it is Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's the demands of the kingdom. The demands, the claims of the kingdom are total. But here's the thing to be clear about. Even though surrender is the requirement, it would be better if I had also said, and surrender is the response. Because surrender doesn't earn the treasure. The man selling everything, he's not purchasing. He, he, he's not in a way saying, I've done all of this, therefore I deserve treasure. No, he just finds it one day. How? It's an act of grace. When you find Jesus, you sell all. You don't do these things to please God and impress God. And say, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Ah, I've been so great. I've given up everything. Jesus is like, no, backwards. I found you. And then I said, follow me. And you left everything to do so. Why? Because the third observation, gain is the reward. Gain is the reward. Now we're nervous to talk about rewards when it comes to Jesus. Because this is not like some other religious systems, I think particularly of religious systems that have a, a balancing scales view of things. If you did this, then you'll get this. If you do this, you'll get this. Some versions of Islam kind of function this way, where you say, well, it's very much cost and reward. So, you know, do we really want to talk about the Jesus life with rewards? You know, the scriptures never shy away from telling us about rewards. In fact, the scriptures do not pretend that both choices are equally valid and just choose the one that is your truth. In Deuteronomy 28, when God's speaking to Israel, he says very clearly, you have a choice. One is death, the other is life. Unequivocally. And when Jesus calls his disciples, he says, not one of you who's given up homes or families will not see more than this when the kingdom comes in fullness. When Jesus tells this parable, he doesn't say, a man found a piece of scrap metal one day and it was valuable to him because he knows what to do with scrap metal. <laughs> you guys. He says, no, no, it's a treasure. Like unequivocally, this is a treasure. He doesn't say, an eccentric collector of seaweed found a piece of seaweed and decided to frame it one day. No, no, let's be clear, this was a pearl. The parable doesn't hide from us the gain that comes. That's why these parables are not actually about sacrifice at all. They're not about how much the man gives up, but how much the man gains. I know why we're nervous about rewards because we, we've, in America, been exposed to the prosperity gospel. And so we've heard people say, follow Jesus and your life will work out. Follow Jesus and you'll have miracles and follow Jesus and your bank account will grow. I've heard it all. I lived in Tulsa, you know. <laughs> Come on, somebody. <laughs> but the prosperity gospel is not wrong because it promises us too much. It's wrong because it promises us too little. It's mistaken the treasure as health and wealth and the American dream. 
when the gospel's truest treasure is Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Jesus is our exceedingly great reward. Paul, when he's writing to the Colossians, he says, my goal, my goal for you is that you would be encouraged and united together in love so that they might have all the riches of assurance. Paul doesn't shy away from riches language. He just wants us to reframe what we think riches really are. He says, let me tell you what true riches are, riches of assurance that come with understanding so that they might have the knowledge of the secret plan of God. And in case you're wondering what that is, it's a who, it's Jesus. And then he says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. Somebody say, all the treasures, all the treasures. What Paul wants us to hear this morning is if you get Jesus, you get everything. If you have Jesus, you have everything. This is why some of you, you've done overseas travel. You've visited Christians in different places, in orphanages or in poor villages. And you're like, how are these people doing this without a 401k? How are these people so happy without choices of menu? And they're like, because they have Jesus. And Christians for 2,000 years have known the greatest treasure of all is Jesus. Now, that hasn't stopped Christians from building hospitals and digging wells and building orphanages. We know that lots of other things matter too, but we also know that if you get Jesus, you get all of these things. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the pearl. Jesus is the prize. And I've thought this week as I've, been praying about this and thinking about this, I, I thought how every time we settle for a lesser treasure, it becomes our master. Every time we settle for a lesser treasure, it becomes our master. Think about this. Your treasure is that next promotion at work. Now you're a slave to office politics. Right? Now you're like, okay, I gotta keep the boss happy, gotta come with my presentations ready. Look, you should do that anyway. Like, that's just good stuff. Like, like do that because you're serving unto the Lord. But if your treasure is that promotion, you will always be a slave to people. You'll always live in fear. What if your treasure is this kind of retirement dream? That's the prize, my retirement dream. Nothing wrong with that. It's wise. I told you last week, we've, we've understood how to, we, we were taught how to invest at an early age. All of that is wonderful and good and wise. But if that is your prize, you will be a slave to fear your whole life. Well, what if I don't make enough? What if I don't have enough? What if I don't get this? What if I don't get this? But if your treasure is Jesus, you're already free. You're already free. You already have it. What else could you have? What else could be, what could be taken away from you and change that? This is why Paul can write to the Philippians and say, I have learned to have plenty and I've learned to have nothing. I can be, I can abound and I can be abased. And that's when he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Not about football games, but about being able to live with whatever comes your way, because if I have Jesus, I have everything. I have everything. He's the treasure. Some of us today, the call or the invitation is to sell all. It's to give it all over. The reason Jesus sometimes would find a person and say, I think you do need to leave everything. 
It's not because Jesus is anti-wealth or anti, it's not any of that. Jesus wants our whole hearts to be fully surrendered to him, whether you end up having all the stuff or not having any of the stuff. To let him be your greatest treasure. Once again, back to C.S. Lewis. One of the few sermons he ever preached, he was not a preacher, he was not a pastor, he was a literature professor. But one of the few times Lewis preached was in a sermon called The Weight of Glory. And near the beginning of his sermon, Lewis combats that old myth about Christianity that God is a miser and a killjoy. And Lewis says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite, what's that word? Joy is being offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Why sell all for that which is not treasure? Why give your life to that which is not a pearl? Or the way Isaiah said it, why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? And your livelihood on that which is not drink. For the thing that will not satisfy. Why? But why not in great joy say, has it really been there all along? Has it been like treasure hidden in a field that I've been trying not to see? But there it's been all along. (gasps) And full of joy. Full of joy. We sell it all. And come to Jesus. This morning as we get ready to come to the table... I asked Jared if we could sing a couple stanzas of that old hymn, I Surrender All. And maybe for some of us this morning, it's a moment to take a deep breath in and to say, oh yeah, what have I been doing? I like confess Jesus with my lips, but I've been chasing this as my treasure. I've been living as if that is the prize. That, that is not the prize. Family is not the prize. Friendship is not the prize. Promotions are the prize. Jesus is the prize. What if I've been, what, what, what? My whole life has been skewed. And this morning is a moment to say, whew, there's only one worth giving everything over to. There's only one treasure worth selling out to. And his name is Jesus. Jared, lead us this morning. I surrender all to Him I freely give I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily
feet I bow Worldly pleasures all forsaken Take me, Jesus, take me now Ah uh-huh. 